Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 12, Creativity in Music Teaching, with Dr Viv John. Welcome back to the podcast. We're glad to be back in your ears again with another guest. And this guest is a fellow music specialist. We'd like to extend a very warm podcast welcome to Dr. Viv John. Thank you very much, Tom and Emma. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for asking me. We've been after you, Viv. Yeah. We've been after you for Finally quite some you. time. And we've 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 managed to nab you at the best time because <laughs> it's a Christmas present to you both. Well, <laughs> it's it is Christmas, but also you are now Dr. Viv John. I think we tried to nab you before you got we nearly the, Dr. Viv, yeah. The seal, um the, the, the rubber stamp, the 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 certificate. Have you actually had your your, your graduation certificate? ceremony yet no I haven't I did have an email and there is I think a graduation ceremony at Easter for the class of 2020 which was me but I'm going to try and push for a summer one because I want to do it when you guys are all there and, and we the students need from this to year. see you <laughs> tread those boards yeah, yeah so, so I'm going to try and push for that if I can well a huge congratulations oh, to you. you um a lot of toil a lot of hard work blood sweat and tears whilst doing a full-time job but you know all of that aside do you want to just Tell us. (laughs) Always a big question to start off with. Tell us what your thesis was all about. What were you trying to investigate? So I was trying to investigate the place of creativity in our student teachers learning as musicians and then as music teachers. Now, obviously, creativity is a really slippery term. It's very multifaceted. Um, It means different things to different people. So Maybe that's something we'll investigate as we talk. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But but that was the sort of main point of it. And the reason that I was interested in it was that as a musician and music teacher myself, I had always been very fascinated with how learning to be a musician and the behaviours that you develop and the actions that you take and the assumptions that, that you kind of generate as you grow as a musician very much affects how you then kind of live your life as human beings and certainly as music teachers and and I was very aware that that was something that happened to me as a classical musician growing up I kind of adopted certain ways of behaving and then when I became a teacher I realized that some of those behaviors were very kind of representative in my everyday life but also I started behaving in a very different way and I started to become a little bit more creative a little bit more willing to take risks a little bit more willing to accept sort of uncertainty and tolerate uncertainty so my investigation really started with me kind of thinking about my journey as a musician and a music teacher and then of course being um, involved in teacher education now for 15 years would you believe I've been here it's been a long time so I've seen lots of cohorts of music student teachers come and go Um, and as Tom will know most of them are classical musicians not all but most of them and so it was very interesting then to see how they responded to that challenge of going from musician to music teacher and how those behaviours altered, developed, enhanced, grew as they then became teachers and not just, so so their identities were music teachers, not just musicians. So that was really the basis of it. And and, um, as a classical musician, I was very aware that whilst there were opportunities for, for me to be creative, there were also some barriers 
and Tom and I have talked about this quite quite a bit in the past. Um, so I was also very interested to see how student teachers would kind of cope with, with, with that environment as well. So that was the basis of it. It's a, a long-winded answer, but really what I was interested in finding out was how their musical identities were shaped by an exposure or not to creativity and how that then manifested itself when they became music teachers and they, they learned to teach. Now you're right, Viv, I've talked loads on the podcast about lots of music teachers being classically trained. You were classically trained, I was classically trained. Yeah. I suppose as a public service to our listeners who are not musicians or are not classically trained, we'd probably better kind of lay out what does classical training look like for musicians? What is it like being being trained as a musician in that, that tradition? I, th- I think being trained as a classical musician, obviously there are a, a huge amount of, of strengths and pluses being a classical musician. and, and um, But, but there, there are some challenges and, and, and some barriers too. I, I think being a classical musician is all about, and I don't know whether you agree, Tom, but, but being a classical musician is all about doing service to the music that you are playing, um, to the composer that has written that music. And so it's very much about playing what is on the page as best as you can, making sure that your technique, your um, tone quality is the best it can be to do justice to the music, to do justice to the composer. And so it means that it's all about serving the music, it's all about serving the composer and therefore the composer's intentions is very much kind of the object of, of what we do as classical musicians and, and, and all the stuff that goes with it in terms of technique and training is all geared towards that. I don't, I don't know whether that's something that you agree with, Tom. Yeah, and I was really struck by a passage in your in your your ed d thesis you said something it really struck a chord with me if that's not an awful pun that you said that um pop musicians kind of appear to be having fun when they perform they're at play when they perform whereas classical musicians appear to be very much at work and the kind of joy comes at the end when you've actually successfully done the thing yeah i i I think that that is the case and the literature tends to to sort of agree with that that we take it very seriously as classical musicians and that's not to say that once the performance is finished we don't take great pride and joy for what we've done but when you see um, rock and pop musicians or jazz musicians or folk musicians my, my, my daughter plays a lot of folk music and there's so much laughter and smiling that goes on within the performance I, last week I saw um, a jazz gig and again there was just so much interaction and, and kind of joy within the performance and you don't get that in classical music you know it's a very serious business while we perform and then the pleasure and the pride com- comes afterwards so I think that's mm. kind of part of it as well yeah and I suppose thinking about teaching because we're thinking about teaching you know yeah. when you're training as a classical musician you go and find a particular teacher don't you you find a certain name or a certain person yeah. and then you try to emulate them so you're just very much doing yeah. as you're told aren't you Exactly. And, 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 you know, this was one of the, the sort of findings in, in, in my uh, research is, is this whole kind of concept of hierarchy. And in classical music, you know, whether we like it or not, there tends to be a very set hierarchy with the composer being probably right at the top of that hierarchy because that's whose intentions we're trying to, 
you know, emulate and, and, and to serve. And then maybe the conductor might come next down in the hierarchy. The teacher, as you say, would also be higher up in that hierarchy. And then the musician would probably be lower in that hierarchy in terms of we have to respond to the the, the needs and the wants and the instructions of those higher up the, 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 the chain. Whereas that doesn't tend to happen in non-classical music environments. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether it's the same in other kind of settings, you know, whether M is the same in drama or, or it's the same in sport, I'm not really sure. But certainly in music, when you watch musicians who are non-classical musicians behave there tends to be I wouldn't say that there's a a removal of hierarchy but it tends to be very flexible and very transient and whoever has the knowledge in the moment is higher up the hierarchy but then that moves then when you know say you know the the drummer has the the knowledge or the, the, the the skill then it moves to that person in the hierarchy so whereas in classical music it's very set in other types of music, it tends to be a lot more flexible, transient, innate, I guess. And, and that's another big difference between, I think, those two, two kind of genres and those two settings. And that was of interest to me, to me as well, because, of course, when you translate that into a classroom environment, mm. you know, we have, whether we want it or not, a natural hierarchy when we go into the classroom with, for the student teacher, the mentor who is mentoring them, but also judging them. And what is their kind of background in terms of musicians? You know, how have they learnt? What are their behaviours? What are their assumptions around music and, and musical learning? You've got the pupils. So, you know, hierarchy will exist in any one of those fields. And so my research was really interested to find out my student teachers or our student teachers' perceptions of that as musicians and then what happened when they went into the classroom and, and were faced with maybe a hierarchy that hadn't been in existence when they were musicians or possibly the other way around. So yeah, it was all about this interplay really between kind of the two settings and how behaviours and assumptions and beliefs sort of manifested itself when they moved, when they kind of migrated from one setting into the other. So it strikes me that you've got something that started with a very sort of personal, almost maybe if we were talking about it methodologically, kind of an ethnographic, something that starts with self about your own journey, extending to kind of almost a sociological perspective. How are these behaviours having a bearing on, you know, what happens in the classroom? How did you begin to figure out how you're going to investigate this you must have had to spend a lot of time in the pain cave figuring out how you're going to measure how you're going to investigate it I I did it it, I found that you know I was very clear on what I wanted to do but how I was going to do it I agonized over it so much because I knew I wanted it to be around our student teacher self-perceptions I didn't want to involve the mentor in the research partly because it opens up something that's much, much bigger, but also then it kind of just exposes us to this hierarchy again. And would then I get the sort of true flavour of the student teacher experience if I kind of opened it up like that? So I I knew I wanted to stick with the student teacher's self-perceptions of their lived experiences as moving from musician to music teacher. 
But how I was going to capture this was something that really, really kind of flummoxed me for quite some time because I really wanted the student teacher's voice to be at the centre of it. And so I tried to investigate lots of different methodologies that would allow that to happen. You know, I looked at the sort of traditional kind of case study and I knew it was going to be some sort of qualitative design. I looked at the traditional case study and that would have worked fine. But I was really interested in this idea of student teachers telling me their stories of their experiences as they transition from, you know, one identity to a new identity. So I looked at a methodology called phenomenology and uh, Tom will laugh at me. I, I came across it one day I was doing a gig in Brecon Cathedral. <laughs> in, my, in my bar's rest I was reading yeah. a little bit about kind of methodology and I thought oh I've got it this is it and I read some more and I thought yeah th- this is what I want to do it was all about um, my participants being able to, to tell their lived experiences but it phenomenology required me as the researcher to bracket off my own kind of experiences my own you know sort of uh, just just experiences within within the the, the 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 sort of landscape that I was trying to investigate, and of course I couldn't do that because their journey had been my journey. They were musicians. I was a musician. They were music teachers. I was a music teacher. The relationship they had with music, with schools, with learning, with teaching, with the music itself was the relationships that I had. Mm. So it became impossible for me to bracket that off. Mm. So in the end, I came across a methodology called narrative inquiry. And that seemed to really kind of do what I wanted it to do, because it instead of me being a sort of um, an objective researcher, it allowed me to be what um, Clandinin and Connolly, which are the, 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 these two authors are, are very much kind of the, the, the sort of um, big names in, in this as a methodology. They talked about the researcher being a, um, having a, uh, being a um, what do they call it, a relational researcher, meaning that I was allowed to have a relationship with the landscape. Mm. And that allowed me then to sort of come into their space and kind of work alongside them as they made this transition from music musician to music teacher and it allowed me into that space and to have that sort of relationship with with not only the research but with them as well and although it was right up to the end I, I, I felt that there was a risk with using this as a methodology I was worried about when I got to Viva was I going to be pounded by my examiners on using a methodology that that could be perceived as being very subjective I could have been accused of, of maybe not coming at it from a, a, a sort of an, an objective position um, so I knew that there were lots of risks with me taking this m- approach as a, as a methodology and I talked about it with my supervisors a lot. And, and actually, at one point, they tried to convince me to go back to a, a kind of more traditional methodology. But something in me knew that this was the right approach to take because all along I wanted the voice of my participants to be at front and centre of the research. And that allowed me to do it. It kind of gave them, it handed over the, the platform to, to them and it allowed them to tell their stories without kind of fear of me sort of fragmenting it and it becoming something else you know they were they were there right at the center of it it's really interesting to hear about all this kind of messiness in the research that we do in in this sort of area it's not like 
scientific sort of research? Is it where you're looking for a, for an objective truth and that kind of thing where you, you work out your place in this messy landscape is really interesting. Another brave choice you made, I don't know if I need to put my tin hat on at this point as we, <laughs> we break into this one. You needed to make sense of those kind of invisible hierarchies and those value systems that permeate the world of music and the world of education. And you chose to dive headfirst into the world of Bourdieu, didn't you? For which I have my hat firmly off to you. Would it be too much of a, an ask to just ask for a very, very potted summary of what he, how he conceptualises this kind of world in which you were inhabiting? Of course, of course. <laughs> Sorry, <yeah. Viv. laughs> No, 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 not, not at all. I mean, I, in my research, I used two theoretical frameworks as sort of guiding models. One was a model around creativity, which maybe we might get to talk about um, today, but if not, that's, that's not a problem. You can read about it. Um, and one was around using Bourdieu's tools uh, to, to understand those sort of social interactions. So, yeah, I don't profess to be anywhere near an expert on Bourdieu, and my understanding is still very minimal and very basic. But I had enough of an insight to realise that it was a way for me to kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, understand and, and share the findings that that, that uh, came through in the research. So just to sum it up really quickly, there, there, there were four tools that I used from Bourdieu. One was his concept of field which is the, the, the sort of setting that the action takes place. So in my research, that could have been the concert hall, the practice room, the garage, if you're a pop musician and that's where you rehearse, the recording studio, but obviously also the classroom. It could be the genre of music. So it could be classical music, non-classical music. So, so the field is the, um, the, the, the setting where the action takes place. The other concept I use was um, habitus, which are the kind of actions that whoever steps into the field develops in order to kind of function in the field. So Tom and I have already talked about being a classical musician. If you step into the classical musical field, then it's all about adopting those behaviours that allow you to, to, to function in that field, about working on your technique, working on, um, you know, your tone, working on honouring the, the composer's intentions and that sort of thing. So that, what, that's what a habitus is. Also then, um, I used the, the, the concept of doxa, which is kind of an unwritten creed. Um, Bourdieu calls it the rules of the game. And it's those sort of unwritten rules that kind of when you're in the field and you're adopting the habitus, you're very aware that there is this doxa, there is this unwritten rule. And you can probably work that out in any single setting. So like, for instance, um, when my son goes to play rugby and I go into the rugby club, I'm very aware of the doxa in that environment that, you know, that there are certain ways that you have to behave. You know, there are certain things that you have to do to sort of gain gain credit, that sort mm. of unwritten rule. Yeah, it's a feeling almost, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, you know, and it, it's, it's often unsaid, mm. but it's there. And of course, it's very much there in music, in classical music, and it's very, much there in the classroom especially when you walk into a classroom setting as a student teacher and you're working with a mentor the mentor is going to set that doxa the mentor is going to have those unwritten rules this is what happens in my classroom mm -hmm. so doxa was another concept that I used and, and the fourth one was the idea of capital which is probably the most common uh, commonly understood term which is about 
the things that we value in the field, the things that are going to gain you recognition in the field. So obviously we've talked about classical music, that would be honouring the intentions, the intentions of the composer, playing with the, the, the best technique you can. But what is the capital in the classroom environment? You know, that's going to be set by the mentor's doxer, but also the mentor is going to set what, what he or she thinks is of most value in the classroom. So those are the four kind of terms and concepts that I use to try and kind of unpack this journey that the student teacher was going on as, as they migrated from musician into music teacher. And I try to use that as, as my sort of framework. I, I think I managed it on a basic level. It's not particularly refined, um, but I think you know, it was enough. But even just you explaining those four things, those four kind of tools, it kind of it already it's got me thinking now when a novice teacher arrives with their mentor for the first time in the department, are you kind of saying that if they turn up and they've come from a Western classical background, that maybe they might have more currency with one, or capital exactly. with one mentors doxa yeah, yeah. Uh, than, yeah. than another who, who has different priorities exactly. different values so you, you yeah. could be on the back foot even you know absolutely. before you've started to, to show what you can do as a teacher absolutely and, and this is what I found when I um, conducted my research and, and I and I heard the stories that, that the students were telling me and, and I interviewed them at three points throughout the year so at the start of the year before they'd started in school at the end of their first placement at the end of their second placement and I was listening to the stories that they were telling me and um, Tom will know that I did the, the IPDA conference the, the other day and I, and I talked specifically about those non-classical musicians and that's exactly what happened to them because they entered into um, a field a classroom field where the mentor was from a different musical background to them their musical identity was different they came from a western classical tradition so they had different values they had a different set of capital as you say they had a doxa that was quite specific to their beliefs and their their sort of assumptions around what good music teaching should look like and of course these non-classical musicians were coming in um, having not shared those experiences as musicians because they were non-classical and they grew up as musicians um, adopting different behaviours and then they went into this setting and, and, and it was quite difficult for them because they went into a setting where there was a hierarchy, there was a performativity culture because we talk about performativity in school a lot, we know that there's a really strong accountability culture in school but actually there's quite a strong accountability culture in Western classical music as well, you know the idea of performing really well in a high stakes environment is something that we know as, as classical musicians in a concert you know you would know it as an actor as well um, you it's, know. it's a common trope isn't it in popular culture as well you often see it play against that doxer in a way where I don't know rough person from the other side of the tracks finds themselves in a royal ballet school audition yeah, yeah. and ends up um, yeah. actually finding a place and yeah. then they come good but part of that process is they have to kind of submit to the the 
the the doxa, that culture, the habitus. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic and a great tension for storytelling, isn't it? Exactly. And and that's why narrative inquiry was great for it, because what narrative inquiry allows us to do as researchers is is we we want to explore and and expose those tensions and those difficulties. And narrative inquiry is a great way of doing it because, you know, you're handing over the voice to the to, to the the recipient, you know, to, to the, the participant, and 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 it really allows those tensions to resonate, and 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 you know, you can explore those really quite deeply through the stories that that the participants tell you. But yeah, I mean, they, they, these non-classical musicians, you know, absolutely of the, of the three that 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 formed part of my research. All of them, going back to this idea of creativity, all of them found as they learned to teach, the creativity that they had developed as musicians, as as non-classical musicians, where as um, uh, maybe a sort of a rock and pop musician, they were jamming, they were improvising, musically they were exploring, and that was very much part of their habitus in their non-classical music field. When they went into the, the classroom, because of the environment and the doxa of, of the school and the, of the department, their creative capacities actually diminished and reduced. And, you know, given that we're going into a, a massive change in Welsh education where every single teacher, you know, whether you've been teaching 32 years like me or two months like some of our student teachers, you know, we're all going to have to be brave and we're all going to have to tolerate uncertainty and, you know, just be creative in the way that we think about pedagogy. It was really disappointing that that those non-classical musicians, they're natural creative capacities were dampened and and reduced as a result of learning to teach. And that happened really because of the doxa and the capital that was existent in the department that, that they were in because their mentor came from a different musical world to them. And those two things never really connected in a way that that allowed them to 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 develop and I know Tom's spoken in the past as well but I wonder if the kind of the additional compounding factors are the the fact that the GCSE and ASNA level curriculum specification the syllabi Mm. are also have a have a western classical bent and you're also working in a context where there is a recruitment crisis for music teachers so it's like this perfect storm working against the less classic western classically trained musicians coming into the classroom and doing what i would imagine are probably the creative things that maybe are more akin to the language of the pupils they're serving absolutely it totally is and and you know when i think about the new curriculum and i think about the future of music teaching you know what we need to do is is to disrupt those norms and those orthodoxies that have kind of held us not held us back because you know I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with them but you know like anything you want to move forward and you know like I've just said I've been teaching a long time and and one thing that I still say to to Tom and my student teachers is that I'll probably be gone from this profession in about six years time but what I don't want to do is to hand the baton on to these guys and they teach in exactly the same way as I taught 30 years ago and and it is about giving opportunities to these young teachers to disrupt norms and and orthodoxies that have always existed and and that's a good thing and we should be really encouraging that. So if anything has come out of the research, and and I should say that whilst the non-classical musicians did reduce in terms of their creative capacities, 
that interestingly, the classical musicians, they developed much more in terms of their creative capacities in the classroom. So, that, I mean, that, that was really interesting, that, that the things that held them back as a classical musician, they went in the, in the classroom and they found that there was a freedom, that they could actually be a lot more creative, that there was a sort of a chance for them to pedagogically improvise in a way that they'd never been able to do as a, as a classical musician. But yeah, you know, if nothing else comes out of my research, it's it's about this idea of moving forward. The time is right right now with a new curriculum around the corner for us to really endorse and encourage these young student teachers of music to just go for it and, 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 and not be held back by the barriers that might be out there. And yeah, so, so that, that's kind of the next stages. <laughs> One of the things I love about work like this is that it takes things that we sort of sense are there, like yeah. these hierarchies, like the field and the doctor, and it it gives it names and it nails it down so that you can look at it and make sense of it and potentially, you know, deal with the things that are not quite working. And creativity is one that absolutely makes me twitch. You know, I, I, I'm hugely <laughs> yeah. suspicious of people who self-identify as creative. You know, yeah. I get a bit twitchy when people glibly describe music as one of the creative subjects it's obviously a really hard one to nail down so how did you actually go about nailing down creativity did you manage to shed light on it in a similar kind of way so we can look at it I try I tried to I mean I looked at lots and lots of different models and uh, different kind of definitions of creativity you know because so much is written on it and you're right Tom you know I get annoyed as well when people say oh well you're a musician you must be creative because what why why does that make us creative by default you know there's no, no rule book to say that we have to be creative you know so I too kind of just got a bit twitchy with that so after quite a bit of research I came across the Lucas Claxton and Spencer model for creative discipline positions, creative habits of mind, which interestingly, I came across it first of all through the creative learning plan in Wales. And they use it as a model, you know, to assess pupils creativity, not not assess in terms of kind of, you know, judging, but just as sort of monitoring, you know, pupils creativity. And what that model is, basically, is five dispositions that they say are they can pin down kind of creative behaviours, but they're flexible enough not to be too kind of... Rigid. Rigid, yeah. yeah. So those five dispositions are being um, inquisitive, being imaginative, being collaborative, being disciplined and being persistent. So those five are the sort of creative capacities that they say could measure creativity. So what I did, I, I took that model and I used that then as a starting point for, for my research. Um, I did a sort of a spider diagram thing <laughs> um, where I got the students to plot where they felt they were. So I got them to think about themselves, first of all, as musicians prior to starting to teach. And so I got them to plot where they felt they were, you know, how inquisitive do you feel as a musician? How persistent do you feel? And they drew a sort of a shape as to where they felt they were. It's like a web, like a spider's kind of web. A, exactly, thing. Yeah. exactly, a, a web. And, and so that gave me really good data to compare the non-classical and the classical musicians' perceptions of their own creativity. And needless to say, the non-classical musicians felt they were very inquisitive and very imaginative and very collaborative the classical musicians felt they were very disciplined and very persistent because that's what we do as classical musicians we practice until we get something right 
So that's how I started off. And, and then I came back to that graph after the first school placement. So this time I got them to think about themselves as teachers. Again, how creative do you feel? Let's use this same uh, model to plot how you feel as, as, as music teachers. And they plotted that. That then enabled me to compare their perceptions of themselves as musicians to teachers, again, classical to non-classical. And then right at the end of the process, we did another graph, two of them actually. One was again for them as teachers. And the other one was, how do you feel now as a musician, having done this journey of learning to teach? So I had these graphs that I was able then to superimpose on one another to kind of give me an overarching picture of the development or the... The, the, the overarching sense of the development that some students had made, but also the regression that some students had made, pictorially, it was really clear to see that. And I, I didn't want to use the graphs in some sort of um, quantitative way. I didn't want my research to suddenly be all about numbers. I wanted to use it very much as a pictorial sort of stimulus for discussion. So when I then interviewed them, we could look at the graph and we could say, okay, well, this is what you said you were like as a musician at the start of the course. This is what you said you were like as a teacher. This is what now you feel as a musician. Tell me why. Tell me why you think there was this regression. Tell me why you think you became more inquisitive the more you learned to teach. So it, it prompted this really rich discussion around their journey. Again, going back to them telling me their stories, but using this graph as a framework for them to kind of just unpack how this had all kind of come to be. And those five dispositions feel to me like a much more complete model of creativity. Because I think, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, the classical music head on me loves the idea of persistence and discipline. And I think possibly the reason I twitch so much with the whole creativity thing is I feel there's a worship of the sort of generative ideas person that just chucks ideas out there with no quality control. And on that basis, I, if you'd said to me, are you are you a creative person? I would probably have said, no, I'm not creative at all. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what I liked about that model, exactly that, Tom, that, that no matter what type of musician you were, if we take those five capacities as, as capacities of a creative person, then everybody can demonstrate some type of creativity. And also I was really encouraged when I read Pam Bernard, who, who I know that you've read some of, Pam Bernard's work on creativity, and she talked about multiple creativities. And I really like that idea of that it's not one dimensional, that, that, you know, as you say, Tom, you know, I don't think I'm particularly creative as a musician, yet that model gave me an inroad into being creative in some way. As a teacher, I think I showed a very different kind of profile of myself creatively. And I was really encouraged that as musicians and teachers, we weren't just um, restricted to one type of creativity. We could be creative on multiple layers and that was allowed and, and that I think was really liberating as well. So I know being a student myself on the prof doc right now that a big sort of end goal of this approach of the ID is promoting change mm -hmm. or provoking a change. Mm -hmm. How has this changed you and your practice and what kind of changes would you like to see going for you said um yeah. I, I, you know you don't have to disclose but you said that you're, you're not going to be in this game for yeah. forever that's what you said forever yeah, nobody yeah. can yeah. so you know what what do you hope to give to the profession through your work 
I would like to do a couple of things, I think. I mean, COVID, unfortunately, has kind of got in the way a little bit in terms of being able to, to do stuff. But I would certainly want to do some writing. Um, you know, Tom and I are going to hopefully write up some some um, of the work that I did for the IPDA conference. I think there's probably a couple of articles that I could generate from the actual EDD thesis. But I, I'm not really in it for writing articles. I know that's part of our work as academics in university. <laughs> yeah, and maybe our colleagues wouldn't like me saying that, but, but kind of that's not the top priority for me. The reason why I did an EDD was that I wanted to have an impact on practice and not just on academia, you know, at large. So um, I'm hoping, certainly it's had a big impact in terms of how I work with student teachers and the questions that I ask them and the way I challenge them about their thinking. It's been difficult to do that actually in situ in school because as we know, they've not been in school that much and we've not been in school that much. But I've really tried to take as many opportunities as I can to get them thinking about the beliefs and assumptions and behaviours that they without thinking demonstrate because that is so much part of their DNA as musicians and just to get them thinking a little bit more about those behaviours and how they might change or improve or develop or be enhanced or might be in danger of receding when they go into the classroom so we've had a lot of conversations about that. I'm hoping that I can work with mentors. I mean, we three have talked about doing maybe some sort of conference in the future. Again, COVID's got in the way of that just now, but we've talked about doing maybe some sort of conference. I'd really like to reach out to mentors around just the idea of maybe it's the idea of Bourdieu and the idea of students going into their fields and maybe just getting them thinking a little bit more about the impact of that and maybe some things that they could do just to sort of support those teachers in, as you say, I'm about kind of giving them those opportunities because it is quite a dangerous field to step into mm. if if the doctor isn't quite aligned with you. you. So, I mean, it's a tricky one because I don't want to upset mentors you know we know that they do a great job for our students they do what they believe is right for our students and they give a lot of time and energy and expertise but I think you know going forward as an institution and I know we've got colleagues who are working on mentor training and a lot of their work is around mentor attributes and I think there's probably something that I could share around how we can develop mentor attributes Uh, attributes to maybe just offer up these opportunities for students to just take risks a little bit more, give them an opportunity to try and disrupt these norms and these orthodoxies, because they are our next generation. And if we don't allow them to do it, then all it'll do is we'll just, you know, if we don't change, nothing will change. And so there's probably some work to do with, with mentors, I think. And then also I wonder whether with the creativity model whether that could be something that could be shared with other subject disciplines, because it's not just musicians who can analyse their creativity. All of us in the arts can certainly, but but why not scientists? Why not linguists? Why not, you know, mathematicians? mathematicians yeah. You know, we can all think about the extent to which we demonstrate these particular traits and, and could there be opportunities for us to develop these even more and could there be opportunities as student teachers to maybe develop those in our practice and, and again going back to the new curriculum now is the right time to, to do that 
So I wonder whether there's something around getting student teachers, maybe a little pilot, student teachers from other disciplines to do some analysis of their own creativity and thinking about their practice going forward to be slightly more creative teachers or teachers who again, sorry to use the phrase again, disrupt these norms, think about these orthodoxies that we want to maybe try and break free from as we go into a a new age in education in Wales where practices and philosophies and pedagogy is going to be different. Okay, so you've already done a lot of work. We're going to ask you to do some more work (laughs) for us. Um, We know that you've got uh, two things for us, our usual short slots. So I'm going to let you choose, Viv. Is it going to be something interesting or something to try first? Which would you prefer? Let's do something interesting first. Okay, what have you brought for us? So I've brought a book by um, Bernard and colleagues, and it's called Bourdieu and the Sociology of Music Education. Now, I know this is very kind of music specific, but I think it would be of interest to maybe anybody who's interested in the sort of concepts of Bourdieu and those tools that I talked about, because each chapter kind of takes a different musical setting and just explores the tools within that musical setting. So there's kind of rock and pop, there's somebody in a conservatoire, music conservatoire, there's somebody in the classroom. So even though it's music specific, I think anybody could read it and understand the kind of landscape um, and certainly give um, a better kind of understanding of those tools that I talked about um, of Bourdieu. So if if kind of Bourdieu and those tools have sort of struck a chord of interest, then that maybe would be something. Uh, and it's quite um, easy to read, you know, because Bourdieu is not easy to read. <laughs> but that that book is quite easy to read. And I think it gives a really good kind of underpinning of, of, of his tools in action. Brilliant. And what about something that our listeners can try? Well, I would suggest maybe having a look at the um, Lucas Claxton and Spencer creative dispositions model, which is easily findable. You know, you can Google it and and you can find it pretty easily. And and it's basically just a sort of a wheel with the five um, capacities there. And maybe just doing a little bit of self-reflection, you know, no matter what subject discipline you come from, and just kind of thinking about your relationship with creativity, using that as a framework, just as a starting point, you know, of how, how we can think about creativity within our own working lives and practices. Dr Viv John, some brave research there on a number of levels. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Yes, you ran, but you couldn't hide. We found (laughs) you and boy, are we glad that we did. So thank you so much. We'll have you back again one day. So no more running, please. Thank you both very much. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was our colleague Dr Viv John from Cardiff Metropolitan University. Thanks, Viv. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to drop us a line. We'll be back in your ears in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.